0: Welcome to the Rockefeller Center's Public Policy Program podcast. Try saying that three times fast. My name is Ben Bogley, and I'm a 22 here at Dartmouth. Today, I'm here with Reverend Liz Theo Harris, who is the director of the Cairo Center and the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. Her activism is helping to transform America. Liz, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So first, I'd love it if you could tell us a bit about your upbringing and what steered you towards becoming a religious leader and an activist.
1: So I was raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, to a very politically, socially justice-oriented family. I was raised to see my faith um, directly linked to doing justice work. In the words of Micah 6, uh, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God? And and that was really kind of an organizing principle of my whole life. Um, so... I got involved in social justice work, anti poverty work, anti racist work from a very young age. I was a. Sunday school teacher at my church at age of 13. Yeah. Uh, I was a deacon by the age of 16. And when I moved to Philadelphia to go to college, um, I met up with an organization of homeless people who were organizing other homeless people. And that became my church and my community and um, the kind of struggle that I I found myself called to be a part of. Um, and so these issues of poverty and justice and and faith um, have always been, you know, intersecting in my life.
0: So part of the reason why you're here is because we're celebrating the legacy of Martin Luther King, Jr. here at Dartmouth. And could you tell us a bit about how Martin Luther King's legacy has inspired you and how it's influenced your own activism?
1: So I was introduced to the poor people's campaign that Dr. King and Cesar Chavez and the Jewish Federation and the National for Rights Organization were all calling for and launching um back in 1967 and 1968 when I was getting involved in the poor people's uh, in poor people organizing and the Union of the Homeless um so I had I had always been inspired by uh, social movements of the past. Uh, I had learned about Dr. King, and not just I have his A uh, Dream Speech, and not just the Montgomery Bus Boycott, but you know the the full spread of his life, where he had been engaged in social justice, um, civil rights, human rights organizing for a long time for much of my life. But I was really introduced to the idea that he and others had of uniting and organizing poor people across race, across geography into a powerful force for change from homeless folk. And so for the past almost 25 years, uh, I've been connected to different grassroots leaders trying to study King, his theology, his theories, um, trying to kind of catch up with Dr. King and then uh, pick up the baton where he uh, left off, what, where he was you know, killed uh, building this poor people's campaign and, um, yeah. and, and been charged by others and, and charging others myself to, to, to not just kind of honor King by, by saying what an amazing leader he was back 50 years ago, but, yeah. but dedicating ourselves to, to finishing some of his unfinished work.
0: No, that's really interesting. And I guess, you know, I've, think of King more as a civil rights leader than as a organizer of poor people but that's a really fascinating perspective
1: I think there's a lot of things about Dr. King's life and legacy um, that we don't always hear about that we don't always learn about um, you know in 1966 he and his family actually much of uh, much because of of Coretta Scott King his wife moved into the slums of Chicago and declared a war on slums um and uh you know in 67 when Dr. King came out against the Vietnam War he talked about these triple evils of of poverty militarism and racism and and that you couldn't get rid of one without getting rid of the other and and his his uh leadership in a human rights movement and connecting poverty and and racism and other issues, you know, goes back a lot farther than just the Poor People's Campaign in 67 and 68. I mean, the March on Washington um, was for jobs and income. Much of the organizing that was happening in Montgomery um, and other parts were about respect and economic dignity. And so I think a lot of times we, we don't we don't see the full true King. um, And uh, we've kind of uh, have a sanitized version of of him um, when, you know, he was out there in the forefront being pushed by poor and impacted people to to really give his life to to a a large human rights movement.
0: So you mentioned poverty, militarism, and racism as the three issues that King kind of tied together and was fighting against. And Would you describe that as what you and the Poor People's Campaign now are fighting against?
1: So we definitely start with those three evils. I mean, you know, we have fewer voting rights today uh, because of racist voter suppression laws um, than we did 54 years ago. We have, um, you know, uh, unjust immigration policies, uh, mistreatment of Native Americans. Um, Racism is, is, is alive and well. In these yet to be United States, poverty is actually increased since um, Dr. King's Poor People's Campaign by about sixty percent. Tens of millions more poor people today than there were fifty some years ago. From our figures, uh, there's actually a hundred and forty million people uh, in 2020 who are poor or or low income. There's uh, the uh, huge problem of militarism and the war economy. The United States spends 53 cents of every discretionary dollar on the military and less than 15 cents on programs of uh, social uplift and education and health care combined. But The Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival has added to those three triple evils, um, both the issue of ecological devastation, because we've seen that in the very communities where there's the most systemic racism and the poorest communities in this country and around the world, those are also... Uh, sites uh, of fracking and mountaintop removal, uh, Cancer Alley in Louisiana, um, and that those that are most impacted by climate change and and storms and and the kind of crisis of our environment are poor and marginalized people. We've also added a a fifth kind of interlocking injustice, and that is this false moral narrative of religious nationalism, uh, a narrative that blames poor people, blames people of color, blames immigrants for all of society's problems, a narrative that tries to pit people against each other and divide us and, and have us fighting each other, and a narrative that feeds us this lie that we don't have enough, that we can't do any better than this, that, that things are going to be this way forever when we're actually living in a, in a country, in a world of abundance. And so we've, we've seen that over the past 50 years as poverty has deepened and spread, over the past 50 years as climate chaos has disrupted the lives and livelihoods of people, over the past 50 years where we've moved from having one war uh, in Vietnam to dozens of wars, declared and undeclared, across the world, um, that that some of that is, is veiled or cloaked with kind of religious extremism, this religious nationalism um, that that kind of serves to be almost a priest for the empire rather than a yeah. chaplain for a, a movement that's breaking through.
0: Where did we go wrong? I mean, where did we kind of lose? Where did we lose the message? Religion kind of being you know appropriated as this nationalist ideology that you know, encourages war, encourages hyper-capitalism.
1: So I think if we look at U.S. history, we have to kind of go back and see that a battle over theology, a battle over the Bible has, has, has come into being in every kind of great crisis and in every great movement. So, you know, when slavery reigned the day, slaveholders uh, created a Bible that was called the Slave Bible, it was a Bible that didn't include the Exodus, didn't include the prophets, didn't have any of the passages where Jesus is talking about bringing good news to the poor and release to the slave. But at the same time, as slaveholders created that Bible and distributed it to slaves that they they barred from reading, I'll, I'll, I'll note, there was Harriet Moses Tubman, there was Harriet Beecher Stowe and William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass, who all contended and contested over a kind of biblical and theological terrain um, who didn't seed that, that God willed slavery, who didn't uh, see the justification of white supremacy, um, and in fact said, you know, the message of the Bible and of Jesus is really different than that. Um, if you go through the social gospel movement, if you go through the civil rights movement, if you go through the women's suffrage movement, there's always been this kind of battle. And and so the, the manifestation of that battle today is seen in this kind of white Christian nationalism, uh, where you have... You know, in the words of my colleague, Reverend Dr. Barber, you have religious leaders praying, P-R-A-Y-ing, for leaders and rulers who pray, P-R-E-Y, on the poor, right? Um, But it's not new in U.S. history. Um, But what has happened over the past 40, 50 years is less and less attention given to those who are organizing from their faith beliefs for justice, for welcoming immigrants, for providing health care. And and the kind of silence, you know, I, I spend some time in Detroit, Michigan, where there's about a hundred thousand families whose water has been shut off. There's thousands, about four thousand churches in in Detroit. And most of them have been absolutely silent about the fact that, that families are being separated and destroyed because they don't have water at the same time that the Nestle Corporation can bottle up as much water as they want from the same sources for $250 a year and make billions on it, right? And the churches have been basically silent. And so, so when, if you read the Bible, you know— it's all about water. It's all about life. It's all about Jesus bringing this, right? And so uh, I think what's happened is that some extremists have, have basically kind of captured what the moral issues of the day are and put those back out. And they've been able to get on the radio waves and in the media. And and so that often what happens is that who are who, who are seen as the religious, quote unquote, Um, perspective on an issue are from a very narrow um, perspective and one that actually there's very little biblical and traditional basis for right you don't often hear many of these extremists quoting the bible um and if you do often it's a misquote um like when when they're trying to talk about um issues like gun rights, when they're trying to talk about issues like prayer in schools, right? I mean, because you can't find them in the Bible. Um, what he, what you can find is 2,000 passages that says that how you treat the least of these, how you treat the homeless is how you treat God, um, and how you honor and worship God is organizing society around the needs of the poor. So, you know, we in the Poor People's Campaign, and National Call for Moral Revival, we at the Cairo Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice at Union Theological Seminary, we that are building a movement, you know, of poor people, of moral leaders, see engaging in this moral battle um, and talking about the real moral issues of our day, our health care and living wages and peace and prosperity for everybody is, is an important part of that struggle.
0: Don't let the right have the theological high ground.
1: And we don't even call... This about being about left or right, uh, I mean what's at the absolute center of, of, our, of our religious teachings is how you treat the the poor um, and and we often will say, you know we don't want to call somebody right who we think is really wrong and has gotten the whole gospel wrong um, so but but indeed we, we cannot be silent um, in the face of those who would have you believing that you know, excluding people is doing the work of of God, or that punishing people for uh, for their problems is doing the work of God. I mean, you can't be silent around that because the minute that you're silent, um, you're not being true to, to to these faith traditions.
0: Do you have any advice for students around my age who are hoping to make change? So, if you look at history,
1: what it's taken for there to be. Justice achieved is for those that are most impacted by injustice to band together with people from all walks of life, including and especially young people, including and especially students, and construct the society that we need to build. There is a growing movement um, in this country right now, and it needs people with all kinds of skills, with all kinds of connections, to play all kinds of roles. And so, you know. Students in 2020, in 2021, in 2022, in 2023 will be graduating into a a country that has about half of its population experiencing poverty. At the same time as we throw out more food than it would take to feed every person, you know, so to have this kind of abandonment in the midst of the level of abundance that we have, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a crisis that, that young people that students have to come to terms with, but not alone, but in the context of the fact that there's a movement growing, um, and that that movement has a role for each and every person. I, I know that that uh, a study came out this week that said that, that it's a record high of students who are experiencing homelessness. And when I travel to different colleges, universities, I hear of many, many stories of, of, of students who are, who are currently struggling, let alone when folks graduate um, into the low-wage jobs that exist, into the healthcare crises that exist. Um, and so this is not someone else's struggle this is not about someone else's future it's about young people's present and future and you know we all are actually called in times such as these to stand up and link arms with other people like us and not like us at all and and forge a new future and it's possible it's within reach all we need is the the numbers and the political will, um, and and so you know I, I want to invite and and really urge students to both get involved with the Poor People's Campaign, but also all of the important struggles that are happening, you know, in communities across the country, and and to bring your expertise and your energy to those struggles, um, and to see that whether you're called to be a physician or a lawyer or an engineer or a social worker or a political scientist, that we need it all. Um, right now, the the wealthy and corporations of this country get to basically use universities to, to test out how they're going to enact, get get more... Labor out of farm workers, or how to, uh, you know, transform cities and gentrify them. What if the power and resources of universities and of students that go to those universities and that graduate from those universities were to be turned towards solving the social problems of our day? We we could be out of this in a minute. All of these problems could be history. And, and so it's, it's our duty um, and our call to, to, to get involved, to stay involved, and to help lead a, a moral movement.
0: I appreciate your optimism and you know, can-do attitude. Thank you so much. How can we keep up with what you're doing in the future?
1: So if folks are interested in the Poor People's Campaign, we have a website. It's poorpeoplescampaign.org. If you are on social media, we are on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram. Uh, If you want to join the campaign, um, connect up with the New Hampshire Poor People's Campaign or or the campaign in 42 other states. Uh, You can text uh, the word MORAL, M-O-R-A-L. To the number nine zero nine seven five, and you'll be immediately entered into our email list and and joined as a member. If folks can come, June twentieth, twenty twenty, will be a generationally transformative event in this poor people's mass poor people's assembly and moral march on Washington. And we're asking for students, for congregations, for community organizations, for unions to to not just come themselves, but to bring a bus with them and make sure that. We, we kind of arrest the attention of this nation to the issues that are impacting 140 million poor and low wealth people. Hear some of the solutions that are coming out of grassroots communities, coming out of this campaign, and build the power that it takes to actually enact those demands and to to win um, the the gains that people deserve and can have. And so please, you know, stay connected. Please come June 20th and um, please get involved in the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival.
0: Thanks again to Reverend Liz Theo Harris. This has been a great conversation. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in and until next time.
1: This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at Rockefeller.Dartmouth.edu.